The works is dead. Are we saved through grace? Are we saved by grace through faith? Yes, absolutely. Every single time we never move from that. But the proof of your faith, that your faith is real, is in your works. It, it's an outflowing of your heart. Jesus says, even the demons believe. They have correct belief. It's you're doing the will of the Father that's proof of this deeper righteousness. So righteousness and entering the kingdom are defined not in terms of a set of cognitive beliefs per se, although we'll find out that that's important, um, but as a way of being in the world. It's activity, it's producing and bearing fruit. Um, you see, these choices that he's laying out, uh, if we're honest, are absolutely terrifying. They're stark, they're serious. Uh, this, through this seven, by the time we get to the end of it, we're warned that we will be destroyed if we don't listen to these words and act upon them. So if you, if you or if anyone you know has ever said, oh, I love Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus is my homeboy in Sermon on the Mount, I love the bit where he says, don't judge me um, and ask for stuff because you'll get it. My response is, have you read the whole thing? And in particular, have you read the end? Because um, it's not fun. Um, it's stark and it's serious. Uh, so last week, Andrew introduced uh, in verses 13 and 14 uh, the, the two gates, one wide and one narrow. And these gates give us access to two roads, one that is easy and one that is hard. And on these roads are two crowds, one large and one small, and they lead to two destinations, one to destruction, but the other to life. So he's contrasting two ways of being in this world. One way appears to be the best way because of its ease and breadth. The word is literally spacious. It's, you've got a lot of space on the broad path. But this easy way, Jesus says, actually leads to our destruction. Um, and the other way, it's difficult. Uh, like, look at it. It's narrow. It's, it's hard. Um, the word is often here translated as persecution. Uh, hands up who like wants persecution in their life. Yeah, I didn't think so. Um, but this is what Jesus says is in the Beatitudes at the start of the Sermon on the Mount is that blessed are those who are persecuted. This way is narrow, it's hard, but Jesus says it's, a, it's the only path to life and it's one that leads to the kingdom. And so we're presented with the choice. We heard a glimpse of it last week. It's presented again and then we're presented with it in a different format next week. And this is our choice, destruction or life. You see, all throughout Jesus' sermon, especially here at the end, there's this uh, word, uh, this phrase that theologians use called eschatological urgency. Uh, I swear I didn't make it up. Eschatology is the theology that's concerned with the end. Okay, that's the word eschatology. And um, it's concerned with death, with judgment. What happens to us when we die? What's the final destination of us? Um, and so in this passage, there's an eschatological urgency. Because this concerns our final destination, we're talking about life eternal. And, and just a heads up, most people hate talking about eschatology. Um, why? Because we're talking about the end. And the awful the thing we don't like about the end is, is its finality. I don't know if you've paid attention, but our culture is rubbish at dealing with the idea of death. We're just not familiar with it. Um, by the grace of God, science, technology, medicine, hygiene, we live longer than we did 100 years ago. That's a good thing, and praise God for that. Um, but the negative side of that is that we've just become 
not only unfamiliar with death, but scared of it in a way, in that we, are, we push it off forever, and that whenever a tragedy comes, we're actually incredibly ill-equipped to deal with it, compared to our brothers and sisters in pretty much every other continent in the world, particularly in the third world, in quotes, where death, and I don't want to romanticize this idea of living in, in somewhere where there's a lot more, where things like child mortality rates are, are, are uh, a lot scarier. I'm not romanticizing that, I'm just saying that we in the West, we're scared of death, we don't know how to deal with it, we try to put it off as long as possible, we even make our faces look like we're not even coming close to death, do you know what I mean? We're rubbish at dealing with it, so we don't like talking about it. And there's the aspect of uh, the possibility that we might have to suggest to someone that the way they're living is bringing them towards destruction. How dare you? How dare you say anything about me and what my decisions are and where my life is going? You see, whenever Jesus is judged, and he is, it's either terrifying and offensive or incredibly, incredibly hopeful. And we see here that, that only for the Christian is there hope in the end. Jesus as judge in the end is the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that gives hope uh, to stories like Madeleine McCann's where it's just, we have no way of being able to process that. Our heart breaks. Everybody wants justice there. And it's only with Jesus as judge that we are certain to get it. So these two paths have opposite destinations, one to life, one to destruction. At the end, Jesus is at the end of both paths, but he's standing at the end of them as judge. And you see, what he says to those in the easy path in verse 23 is, I never knew you, depart from me. And what he says to those on the narrow path, if you were to read ahead in Matthew 25, verse 21, well done, my good and faithful servants, come and enjoy the joy of your master. And all throughout this conclusion, he's giving us this choice, these warnings and exhortations to respond correctly. Why? Because of his love for us. Because he wants us to be with him in the kingdom. He's graciously inviting us to enter the narrow gate, to choose the right path. It's hard, but the destination is what's good for you. It's worth it. Jesus says in John 10, I am the gate. If anyone enters me, he will be saved. So there's the gate. It's narrow, but it leads to life. And Jesus is the only way in. Uh, Tim Keller says the gospel is an exclusive truth, but it's the most inclusive, exclusive truth in the world. Does that make sense? Jesus' claim to life is exclusive. There's no life apart from him, but he invites us into it. The kingdom is exclusive. There's one way in, there's one gate, there's one path that anyone can enter through Jesus. Uh, I'm gonna pray for us as we go on because as I've been dealing with this all week, my soul's just been troubled. I hate reading these words. It's not, it's, it's, they're scary. They, they confront something about my mortality that I am uh, probably prefer being ignorant about. Um, and um, if that's the same for you, just even in these first 10 minutes, um, I think it's good. Let's, let's just pray um, and bring this before God. Uh, Father, we thank you for your scripture. Thank you that it is true, that it is good and profitable for us. And Lord, we thank you for this beautiful sermon, this illustration of what righteousness looks like. Uh, And the consequences at the end of that, the choices we have to make are scary, Father, um, because it concerns our mortality, concerns our end. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us. 
and that we can rest assured in the, in the work of Jesus on the cross, his resurrection. Uh, Father, be with us as we continue to delve into your scripture. Teach us. Uh, my, may my words be few. May yours be, uh, be uh, multiplied. Uh, we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So as we work through this, um, we're going to just keep your Bible open. I say that every week. Just keep your Bible open in church. It's just a good practice, right? Uh, what? Just all the time. Just always, just always keep your Bible whenever. Yeah. yeah, that's a good one too. Uh, right, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Uh, so first we're presented with this watch out, be on the lookout. Uh, we're on the lookout for what? For false prophets. Uh, interestingly, the word beware is used six times in the Gospel of Matthew. Twice in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and every time it's used in the Gospel of Matthew, it's in relation to some kind of spiritual leader. That's not a fluke. That's not just a chance. There's something serious going on here. Um, if we have a skip through history, we'll find out pretty quickly through biblical history that there is a strong narrative about being aware of false prophets. So in Deuteronomy 13, I think I've got like a list of um, these. You can like take a picture or make it a rhythm. Um, I'm just going to skip through them quickly. In Deuteronomy 13, if a prophet or a dreamer or if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to that words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. In Jeremiah 14, we read, And the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them, to, or, command them or speak to them. They're prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Obviously, Jesus says it here in Matthew, but perhaps later on in the New Testament, uh, in his letter to Timothy, Paul writes, For the time is coming, uh, Timothy being a young church leader in a different part of the world, uh, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears. I love that word picture. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Peter says it too. Uh, but false prophets also rose among you, just as there will be false teachers among you, who also secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Listen to the tense in that. But false prophets also arose among you, just as there will be false teachers among you. He's writing not necessarily just about the past, but also about the present and the future. And then we skip on to John. In 1 John, beloved, you guys spent, you spent a sermon like in the book of 1 John. Um, love how John always addresses uh, his, his, his beloved, like this, this old grander. I love John because of this. Um, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. It surfaces a lot. One last one for you. Uh, in Revelation, if you're not familiar with Revelation, it's apocalyptic literature. Um, on your first approach to it, it can sound mental. Uh, that's okay, everybody thinks the same. It's okay to acknowledge that. Um, in this language, in, in talking about the end times, in Revelation 20, verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. 
and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. It's remarkable that of all the people that could have been mentioned to have been thrown into a lake of fire, it's a false prophet. Um, you and I may have other people, other types of people in mind, but in the kingdom of God, it's the false prophet who's named. How are we all doing? Okay? Any false prophets in here? No? Oh, good. The point is, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't going off on a tangent. It's a major theme throughout Scripture, and very few of us pay attention to how vital this is for our lives. Um, and I've been racking my brains this week, just trying to think, like, why is this? Why do we not talk about this so much? Um, one reason, maybe it's because we're familiar with how Christian fundamentalists, you know, super traditional um, brothers and sisters, are characterized as, as claiming everyone being a false teacher except them. And maybe we just don't want to be associated with that, um, and, and we avoid it. Yet here is Jesus and the rest of the Bible saying, be aware of this. And it's no, it's, it's no surprise, really. We sang uh, Come Thou Found, the verse, we're prone, at best we are prone to wander. Um, when left to our own devices, we will not necessarily walk the narrow path. We always need encouragement. We always need reminded. We are prone to wander. And I can't, I can't put ourselves in the mind of God, but the closest can possibly come is if I am, I, the heartbreaking scenario where I'm saying I'm out with my children, who are four and two, almost. Uh, the heartbreaking scenario, should somebody come and lead them astray and me never see them again? It's about as close a possibility as I can imagine. I can't imagine how God's heart breaks whenever he sees his people always at risk of being dragged off in the wrong direction because someone is promising sweets. It's terrifying. And it shows the gravity of how seriously we need to take this. I get to preach like maybe three or four times a year in village. Um, <laughs> this is not necessarily the first thing that I would jump to. And it speaks to why we just work our way through this because it's so, so key. It leads, it can lead to our destruction. Um, so it is a big deal. Um, so it happens all the way through the Bible. The second thing just to note quickly is that... Um, the implication is that false prophets exist today. Um, there are warnings out there in the world that you have seen um, that make me either laugh at their, how ludicrous they are or despair at the state of the human race. Um, have you ever seen, it, it exists, I'm just curious if anyone's ever seen it. Um, irons come with the label, do not use while wearing a shirt. Has anyone ever seen that? That's legitimately a warning that comes on an iron. Or maybe you've seen warning contains nuts on a packet of nuts. Um, this one's good. Uh, wearing this garment does not enable you to fly uh, on a Superman costume. Uh, and, fi and finally, my favorite one, do not use for drying pets on a microwave. <laughs> yeah, seriously, that exists, that's a thing. Um, these are not, these are warnings for stupid people. Um, I, I wish they didn't have to be, but they apparently have to be in, they have to be sentences in the world. I just never thought I'd read that sentence. Um, don't microwave, don't microwave your pets, but there we go. Um, for Jesus, though, it's a stupid point to make, to say that this isn't an idle warning. He warns us because the danger is real. Uh, he's saying that whenever you look at your religious leaders, you'll, you'll see that there's two types. There are faithful shepherds, faithful teachers, faithful prophets, and there are false prophets. 
In the Greek, um, I'm sure you all know, being, a, being an educated type, it's pseudo-prophetone. I had to write that out phonetically so I wouldn't mess that up. Uh, pseudo, we're familiar with that word, right? Pseudo means falsehood, it means an untruth or a lie or a sham. And a prophet is someone who speaks uh, the word of the Lord. So a pseudo-prophet is someone pretending to speak the word of the Lord, but is in fact an imposter or a phony. Uh, and Jesus tell, says, beware of these preachers and teachers because they are real. They are, not, they are present and scarily perhaps even in village church. And they're dangerous. They will lead people astray towards destruction. So if you're a Christian, this is the question we have to ask ourselves of any Christian leader we meet. Is this person a false prophet? Is this person a faithful or real teacher or a false one? So a really uncomfortable question I'm going to ask, have you ever asked that question about your leaders in village? I feel very vulnerable. <laughs> I'm very aware of the irony of me preaching on false preachers. <laughs> it has been cutting to my core this week. Um, you should. If you're part of a church, you should. Um, I, yeah, I'll say something on that direction. Uh, so his warning is based on the assumption that false prophets are real and perhaps even present in our midst. Uh, finally, just on verse 13 and the third point here, um, truth exists. Um, we have a terrible habit of importing our own understandings of what good and evil are into the biblical text. Which, by the way, is exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis 3. They redefined good and evil based on their own desires, not God's. And that this is the temptation to import what we think is good and evil. And so today in our globalized world, we have access to basically any sermon um, in a building that has an internet connection. It's probably a podcast. It's probably somewhere online. We have a staggering amount of content to pay attention to writers, bloggers, authors, all who uh, claim the name of Jesus. And so the problem with that is we define good not necessarily based on their doctrine, but based on like how good they make us feel or like what kind of vibes we're getting. So someone's like happy and tolerant and nice and we say that's okay, and that makes us incredibly susceptible to false prophets even today. But what Jesus is saying is that there is, there is such a thing as truth, and it's the truth of the Bible that God has revealed by divine inspiration. This is our objective standard by which false prophets can be distinguished. It's why we treasure the Bible here in village. We have a culture of the word dwelling among us, not just being read on a Sunday, but permeating every single area of our lives where it's, we, want to, we, we want to see a culture where we're just, we just recite this to one another in our, in our, in our trials. We, we can cite it to one another in our celebrations and everything in between. Um, and as false prophets deviate from the scriptures, we can see that they are false teachers. So you see a true teacher is someone who takes the truth of the word of God and sticks to it. Obviously a false teacher is someone who claims divine inspiration but propagates falsehood instead. So the logic of verse 15, Jesus is saying is there's such a thing as truth and that obviously what contradicts the truth is a lie. That those who propagate lies in God's name are false prophets and that these people exist today in the church. That's what Jesus is warning against here. Beware of false prophets. 
Um, turn with me to Jeremiah 23. This has been a helpful um, Old Testament um, reading as you've been processing this. In Jeremiah 23, like in the middle of your Bible somewhere. Jeremiah 23. And we're going to start in verse 16. <clears throat> Thus says the Lord of hosts, uh, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say no disaster shall come upon you. So that shows us what a false prophet looks like, right? Look at verse 18, and they're contrasted with the, the faithful prophet here. For who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and to hear his words? Or who has paid attention to his word and listened? Skip through to verse 21. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Verse 22. Uh, but if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. And they would have turned away, they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. On down in verse 28. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. So do you see a real clear contrast between uh, a false prophet and what a true prophet of God does? On one hand, you've got the false prophet, uh, this person who is a dreamer, speaking their own speculations out of their own hearts and minds. And on the other hand, you have the true prophets Someone who has stood in God's counsel to see and hear his words. They've paid attention to it and listened. They've prayed over it. They ask God to show them his truth. They look for and unpack God's truth found in his word rather than making up their own ideas propped up by the Bible. So when you're trying to discern if someone is a false prophet or not, ask yourself these questions. Has this person stood in the counsel of the Lord? Is the Bible being explained or is it just a springboard? Another thing you see the false prophet doing in this passage in verse 16, they fill you with false hope. And then in verse 17, they say, they say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. In his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, John Stott points out another key thing to look for in a false teacher, and that's amoral optimism. Their denial that God is the God of judgment as well as the God of steadfast love and mercy. He is both things at all times. Another uh, uh, Old Testament scholar from, I don't know, hundreds of years, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's pretty good. He's oh, no, like the 50s. Okay, he's, got his, he's alive though? No, he's dead. He's definitely dead. But he's not, I mean, he's alive, but he's in heaven. Alive. He's alive in Christ. Was <laughs> John Stott just died though, right? Didn't it? Like 10 years ago? Yeah, not long ago. Sorry. So, Martin Lloyd Jones speaks to, uh, on the, the subtlety in discerning false prophets. He says the falseness is detected not by what they say, not by what they do say, but what they don't say. Their falseness is detected not by what they do say, but what they do not say. So they will preach the truth, 
Pseudo-prophets preach some of the truth. They preach the God of steadfast love and mercy. Yes and amen to that. Praise Jesus. But is that all? Do they also preach that God is judge as well? That God has wrath? Or on the other hand, on the other hand, we often characterize um, folks who maybe only necessarily preach God is love. But there are people who only preach God is wrath. It can go both ways. So they preach the truth, but they're only preaching some of it, not the whole truth. So false prophets fill people with hope. They give a false sense of security. Verse 22 of Jeremiah 23, it says, If they had stood in my counsel, they would have proclaimed my words, which is the truth, to my people, and they would have turned from their evil ways. They would have warned them that the path they're on leads to destruction. So if, when we jump back to Matthew 7 here, I don't think it's a coincidence that Jesus' warning about false prophets immediately follows the teaching about the narrow gate. John Stott says, and I don't know, I think I have this one, um, for false prophets uh, are adept at blurring the issue of salvation. Some model or distort the gospel that they make it hard for seekers to find the narrow gate. Others try to make out that the narrow way is in reality much broader than Jesus implies. And that to walk it requires little, if any, restriction on one's beliefs or behavior. Yet others, perhaps the most pernicious of all, dare to contradict Jesus and to assert that the broad road does not lead to destruction. But that as a matter of fact, all roads lead to God. And that even the broad and that even the broad and the narrow roads, although they lead off in opposite directions, ultimately both end in life. It's no wonder that Jesus likens such false teachers to ravenous wolves. Not so much because they're greedy for pain, for gain, prestige, and power, power but they, are, they often are. But that they are ferocious. And that is extremely dangerous. The great irony is that they are responsible for leading some, of the, some people to the very destruction which they say does not exist. So the question we ought to be asking, is this person warning people of the wide road to destruction? Is this person preaching that Jesus is the only way to life? That Jesus' sacrifice on the cross can pay the penalty of our sins? Is this teacher warning you that if you go on the broad path and the easy path, you will perish? <clears throat> Beware of false prophets. Um, let me say this. The, the vast majority of our preaching in village is we, we make our way through the books of the Bible, even in the nine, ten months that Village South has existed. It's been one book after another, and that's been our story a lot. We have done a couple of topical themes here and there, but in general, recently um, we went through Acts, we went through Ecclesiastes, we went through a portion of the Psalms, we went through um, the Son on the Mount. And the reason we do this is it forces us to teach the entirety of scripture. We don't get to cherry pick the verses that fit our agenda. Like I said, I get to preach here three, four times. I'd love to preach something that's like a lot more, you know, friendly and upbeat. Um, but that is my fear of man kicking in. <laughs> um, it's so vital that we preach this whole text. We want the whole of scripture, the whole truth. And when we do this, we find that sin is the issue that it leads to destruction. That's the message throughout the whole Bible. The gospel is not, oh Lord, my life is empty, fill me. The gospel is, oh Lord, I'm an offense, rescue me. So this is the message you find the whole way through the Bible and we'll preach it. 
So beware of false prophets, they are ravenous wolves. They lead you not to the narrow gate, but down the path to destruction. And notice they're not only dangerous, they're deceptive. They're not necessarily easy to recognize. <laughs> they don't come in. Good morning, church. It is I, purveyor of lies, here to snatch your soul. Um, look at my lovely sheep coat. I don't know. They are, they are deceptive. They claim to be a teacher of truth. So on the surface, they look like the real deal. So, so beware is the warning we get from Jesus. Be on our guard. Pray for discernment. Use our critical faculties. Be vigilant. Don't be dazzled by charisma. Their charm, their honours, their degrees. And so then we get to verse 16. One way that we... Actually, before we skip on to verse 16, one little note. We are to beware, and this is a serious charge for us. I don't think Jesus is after creating a, a culture of watchdogs where we are all just like really suspicious of one another, of any new person who comes in. Um, I don't think that's what it is. Cast your mind back to when we looked at, um, in a few weeks ago when we did um, on looking at judgment. I think John preached that here. Um, it's not that we are to, uh, the emphasis is not on that we don't judge, it's that we judge fairly. We're to be discerning disciples. Um, not just these watchdogs who like to snap at anybody who says really something new. And chances are, someone that isn't always necessarily a false prophet, they could just be an immature disciple. So uh, it takes time to discern these things. Um, one way we can work out who these false prophets are, verse 16, okay? Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from the thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. We don't know that. We all live in a city. So every healthy tree, the answer is no, just so you know. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. J.C. Ryle wrote in this text that sound doctrine and holy living are the marks of a true prophet. So don't just see how someone opens their Bible. Look at how they open their life. Wow. Look at their lives. Look at the fruit. Fruit is this word that's used a lot in the Bible to talk about character. What comes out of a person's life? Are they bearing good fruit in their life that shows that uh, they are a healthy tree and not a diseased one? If you have been uh, grown up in church, you will be familiar with uh, the book of Galatians and Galatians 5. Paul gives us the fruit of the Spirit fruit in our lives that is evidence that we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. And this is not something, we can fake it for a very short amount of time, but it shows this is stuff that only comes through uh, abiding in Jesus in the words of John. Uh, the, so the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. We should be asking ourselves, not only do, do, does this person preach uh, you should be asking yourself, not only do they preach the truth of God's word, but has this truth been planted in their own lives, resulting in good fruit? So we look uh, not at the hype, but we look at the substance. We look at character, not charisma. We look at, pay attention to someone's marriage. Pay attention to their relationships in general with their, with their family, with their children. How do they steward sex and money and power? Are they under the authority of the local church with all its problems and issues and beauty? Or are they de-churched and rogue? Um, and a lot of these are 
they're applicable here very much so, but uh, also just it's a good warning to many of us listening to podcasts and sermons from other parts of the world, and they're good. It's good to listen to people outside of our own network. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a warning to be careful who we are listening to. It's harder to pay attention to these things from a distance, and it, it, it emphasizes the beauty of the local church because you can discern those things in a local congregation over time. We hope that uh, you can see that, and it's our prayer that you see that in the lives of your leaders here, um, and that, that that will continue to be the case. It shows why we take such a long time processing um, new elders. So Nick and Alan are two guys that um, we are working through some stuff with, um, in the hope that uh, they will become elders in the future. And um, it's not a case of you interested in being elder? Here you go. That's not how this works, it's time. And so we've asked for feedback. We ask, like, what are those, for those of you who are in their lives and close to them, well, how do they live their life? Because we see so much and we can discern a fair bit, but we need, those, we need feedback from those around us. I digress. Read the Beatitudes again, okay? Does this describe your leaders? If we invert the language uh, in Matthew 5, uh, sorry, Matthew 5, uh, Use this as a measuring stick for our leaders. Beware of leaders who are not poor in spirit. Beware of leaders who don't mourn. Beware of leaders who are not meek. Beware of leaders who don't seem to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Beware of leaders who aren't merciful, who aren't pure in heart, who aren't peacemakers. Beware of leaders everybody likes. Beware of leaders who are never reviled or persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus says in John 15, because you're my disciple, the world will hate you sometimes. So is there good fruit in this person's life? Are they living the life of deeper righteousness that Jesus has been describing the whole way through the sermon? Or are they just like the Pharisees, all external appearances? Uh, in Matthew 3, uh, John the Baptist calls them out too and exhorts them to bear fruit as well. And he makes it very clear uh, what kind of fruit we're looking for. If you want to follow, it's in Matthew 3 from verse 7. Is John the Baptist uh, when when he saw them? When John the Baptist, when he saw, when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruit in keeping with repentance." I do not presume to say to yourselves, "We have Abraham as our father," for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Sound familiar? I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with, holy, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's saying the same thing as Jesus here in Matthew 7. It's a staggering picture. The axe is at the root of the tree. If it refuses to bear good fruit, it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Bad trees are good for one thing, and that's firewood. This is what he says as he's preparing people for Jesus coming. And John says, look at the fruit. John says the fruit he's looking for is repentance. It's turning away from sin. So Jesus, when he comes, must see lives that seek to turn from their own sin, to cry out to God for mercy, lives that are seeking righteousness, staying on the narrow path, lives that mourn over their own sin, that never stop fighting this sin, this dying to self language that Paul uses. John the Baptist warns that acts will be laid to those who don't produce fruit in keeping with repentance. 
This is a call for self-examination. We constantly see our own sin. We flee to the cross for forgiveness, repenting daily, putting to death the sinful nature. We can have peace and confidence in what Christ has accomplished for you on the cross, but don't get comfortable with your sin. It's the tension we live in. So do we have an area of sin in our life that we've kind of given up on? Can I encourage you to not? It's a dangerous place to be. Put to death your sinful nature daily. And under the last little bit in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. That scares me, man. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, it's the one who bears fruit who does the will of the Father. Verse 23 says, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done in your name. All these spectacular things, prophesying, casting out demons, mighty works, the sermons we've preached, the MCs we've led, and Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Depart, me, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The other thing that's been racking my head this week is that it seems to be, and this just shows you how different kingdom economics are from the rest of this world, people can exist with the gifts of the Spirit, but not necessarily the fruit of the Spirit. People are doing, maybe it's just the perception of those things. Maybe it's just in the eyes of other people, like, oh, they're doing good things for the world. Maybe that's just all it is. But there's something about people seeing you act in a certain way, and Jesus saying, that activity doesn't mean anything. I want your heart. I want you to stay in me. So here's the thing about this passage. It's true good trees can't produce bad fruit and bad trees can't produce good fruit. We see that here. But we're not necessarily always great at spotting it. Or if we do, maybe sometimes we're just not that bothered. So inevitably, false teachers slip into our midst. We might be able to spot them. I hope we can. I pray we can. It's one thing that church leaders are challenged, with elders are challenged to do is beware of false teachers among us. But there's a good chance we'll miss and, the next, and this section explains why. It's because they don't realize they're false prophets. So if this first section is about false prophets, uh, the bit that says a tree and its fruit, the bit I never knew you is almost, a, maybe it could be named false disciples. There's a level of self-deception that people are convinced they're actually in Jesus and they might not be. Um, they turn to their list of achievements first. Which, as we know, work nothing towards our salvation ultimately. They don't, cause, they don't count an iota towards that. Another thing that's been... Uh, no, said that. So, always framing our understanding of what true righteousness is, is we need to have this, like, this tension that's difficult between knowing that our works don't do anything towards our salvation. They are external... It's not even in rejoicing. So there's the part in the Gospels where Jesus sends out the 72 and they come back and they say to Jesus, we cast out demons in your name and they're like so pumped and so happy and Jesus says to them, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your name is in the book of life. Um, so it's not our works because they're external. It's not even in rejoicing in the works that are done in Jesus' name. It's the outflowing of works because of the saving work of Jesus on the cross, his beating of death through his resurrection, his ascension, and his spirit coming to dwell in our hearts. That's where we sit. Yeah. Our works come from there, and they are proof 
of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Dale Carson writes, uh, what then is the essential characteristic, I think I might have this one time, maybe not. What then is the essential characteristic of a true believer, the genuine disciple of Jesus Christ? It is not loud profession, nor spectacular special triumphs, nor protestation, protestation of great spiritual experience, not that those things are necessarily bad, but its chief characteristic is obedience. Obedience, obedience, obedience is always the thing we'll preach, church. You did all these things, but I never knew you. I'm going to, we're coming to a close, just finishing looking at this, what I, I never knew you means. The question you could ask, isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he know everything? What about Psalm 139, where it talks about, I knit you together in your mother's womb, or the, the Psalm talks about him knowing the number of hairs on our heads. He knows us more than we know ourselves. But this language of known is very weighty. It's the, the language of knowing someone in the Bible um, communicates having a relationship, even a sexual relationship. So Adam knew Eve. It serves as a way to speak of God's special relationship with people whenever he says, I never knew you. So it's not, again, it's not knowing in an intellectual sense. That's not it. The command isn't love the Lord your God with all your mind, full stop. It's with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and your strength, or in other words, your whole personhood, everything that constitutes who you are, you love God with that. You give your entire self to his will. I think there is this, I think there's this connection between the essential uh, components of, of, of bearing good fruits in the previous section and doing the will of the Father. Uh, with, sorry, so there's this uh, connection between uh, bearing good fruit and doing the will of the Father. And in verse 23, about Jesus saying, I know you, you have a relationship. You're my brother. And so our, our mind goes to John 15, and this is what it means to know and to be known. Jesus tells us exactly what it's looked like to have a relationship with him. He shows it, he demonstrated it on earth. In John 15, verse one, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. We see this language again. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branch. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, there's a lot of abides in here. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my, Father commandment, my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Isn't this amazing? He's showing us exactly how to do it. Who's going to talk about laying down our lives for uh, our brothers? That he doesn't call us his servants anymore. You want to bear fruit? Abide in Jesus. Be with him. Remain in his love. 
Remember, the purpose of being distant in this world is to glorify the Father, and Jesus shows us how to do it. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So we stay a part of the vine. We remain in his love. We be with him. We run with him. We spend time with him. We devour his word. We're in community, but also times of solitude. We spend time in prayer. Abide in me and my word will abide in you. I've chosen you. I've appointed that you'll bear much fruit. I'll do it, but you have to remain in me. In me, that's what this relationship looks like. So D.A. Carson writes, it's true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it's equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll be obedient. You'll keep my commands. Do you see how these things overlap? Love, intimacy, relationship, obedience, bearing fruit, they're the same thing. Uh, It is true that men are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. Any other view of grace cheapens grace and it turns it into something unrecognizable. Cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, church membership without the rigors of church discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, results without obedience. Watch out for cheap grace. And so we come to the table uh, we plead not anything that we've done, no works. Uh, the only way we abide is because of the work of Jesus on the cross. That he went to the cross, that he allowed his body to be ripped to shreds and his blood to pour. So we're commanded to take a meal. Anytime we eat together, um, and we make a point of this on Sundays, we take bread and we rip it and we dip it in wine. And there's something that's really messy about doing it this way. There's lots of ways to do communion. There's something that's so visceral and messy about the way we do this that I love. It speaks <coughs> excuse me, to, to the, the way the body's flesh, our Lord's flesh, was ripped apart. So the call is to be known and to know. We're granted that kind of access through abiding. We're also, I can press on you the, 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 the importance of the local church in helping us navigate this. Wandering as a lone ranger trying to, to work these things out is impossible. <coughs> Push into your brothers and sisters. And on Judgment Day, what's our plea? It's Jesus Christ. That's what this meal is about. We don't say, Lord, Lord, look at all the things I've done. It's look what you've done. And the knowledge of that that one day we get to say that shapes today and leads us into obedience. Would you stand with me as we pray?